Hi church, my name is George and I am doing the Bible reading for tonight. So there's three readings, I'm going to read each of them out as I read them. The first one comes from Isaiah 54 verses 4 to 8 and it says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be discouraged, for you will not suffer disgrace. For you will not forget the shame of your youth and the disgrace of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will gather you in overflowing wrath for a moment. I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The second reading comes from Acts 16, verses 11 to 40. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Simothrace the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the, a woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshipper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptised, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she was prevailed upon us. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of div divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of money, making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined, the crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And now they are going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that the, they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters, there they departed. And the third reading is from Philippians 1 verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it in completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Good evening, and uh, it's good to be uh, with you in your lounge room digitally, or wherever you might be. Uh, Andrew Caddy is my name if you haven't met, and um, uh, this is church for the moment. Um, it's, it's certainly better than nothing, it's not as good as it will be, uh, but here we are. Uh, one of the most striking and wonderful things about Jesus uh, throughout his earthly ministry was his sheer positivity in relation to people. Uh, if you gave him an inch, he would walk with you for a mile, and then actually he'd go the extra mile if necessary. Uh, there was no person, no sinner of any kind who showed the merest glimmer of repentance that he did not connect with. Prostitutes, violent criminals, adulterers, uneducated bogans, snooty elites. Gloriously, one of the, the nastiest things that his opponents could think to say of Jesus was that he was a party animal, that he was a friend of sinners, that he was a, a, a glutton and a drunkard. That's where he liked to be right in the middle of the human mess. He was the least prejudiced, least rejectionary, most human of humans that you can possibly imagine. And yet, and yet there was one category of people who Jesus could not stand. 
repulsed him. And in this, he was doing nothing other than reflecting the heart of God. There, there is a refrain that captures this, that's repeated throughout the Bible, is found on Jesus' own lips and uh, in the rest of the New Testament. It's that God gives grace to the humble, but God opposes the proud. One of the lovely word pictures that the scriptures uh, uses to depict the proud are the stiff-necked. Those whose good posture is not just um, good posture, but is actually a bodily enactment of a spiritual condition. That of being above others, of looking down on others, of being untouched and untouchable by others in splendid superiority. And God opposes the proud. God is against the proud. God directs his will and power at frustrating the purposes of the proud, of bringing down the proud, and so does Jesus. It was against the proud, those whose estimation of themselves was inflated, either in relation to others or to God, that Jesus was as flint-faced as possible. And I want to suggest that that's a real challenge to us, this opposition of God to the proud. We live in a culture, and even more specifically in a cluster of LGAs known as the inner West, that has made an art form out of pride. Uh, one of the most obvious uh, textures of this is the pride of self-righteousness, that I am better than other people because, well, for a ranger, I know more truly than others. I do the right thing more consistently than others. I speak about and support the right causes more than others. Uh, just this week in uh, my apartment precinct WhatsApp group, uh, there was uncomprehending comment after uncomprehending comment about mask non-wearers, encouraging others actually to dob them into the police. Uh, that kind of comment is what theorists call performative speech. It, it, it performs a function, which is to indicate without a shadow of doubt that I, the speaker, am one of the good people, the mask wearers, that I've never done anything about which the police need to be called even and especially when they're right. This is pride. This is pride. And we've made an art form of it. It's in every pore of our culture. And it therefore is one of the great seductions for those of us who are disciples of Jesus as well. Uh, today, as Miles mentioned, we start a new sermon series in the short letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. And for reasons that we'll come to in a moment, it is all about pride, or at least it's all about the antidote to pride, which is humility, because at its heart, what Philippians lays before us is the excellence of divine humility and therefore the divine excellence of humility. Right in the middle of Philippians lies a poem. Uh, actually, the scholars think that it might have been even an early Christian hymn, which was uh, well known and sung by the first church and which Paul takes and he uses it to be the centerpiece around which his whole letter revolves. It starts in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, then I'm, I'm going to read slightly different from the NIV, I'll explain that in a moment, who being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, the apostle says, this is to be our mind, our, our mindset. This is to be the fundamental cast of our thoughts and attitude. This is to be our posture in life. What you might call the divine J-curve. It starts at a place from which there is, there is none higher. Being in the form of God. Which, in case there was any ambiguity about it, means being equal with God, having equality with God, what you might call sharing in the divine identity. So that all you can say about God the Father, you can say about God the Son. And all you can say about God the Son, you can say about God the Father, except that the Father is the Father and not the Son, and the Son is the Son and not the Father. But other than that, equal, absolutely. That's where the story starts. Jesus Christ being in very nature God, The most glorious of the glories. But that's not where it stays. It starts nowhere higher, but it moves to nowhere lower. Utter self-emptying, the form of a slave, humble, obedient to the point of death, even the horrible, terrible, shameful death of a cross. And then there is an epilogue, a resolution, a glorious Therefore, precisely because this is the journey that Jesus took of self-emptying and self-humbling and obedient sacrifice, therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name, a, a reality, a substance, an office, a place that is above every other name. And why? Why was it like this? And, and here is where Paul is at his most radical, his most shocking. This is where it's most powerful for us. This divine J-curve is what it means to be in the likeness of God. As I mentioned, the uh, translation that we use normally, really excellent, the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, is a little unfortunate here. Uh, it adds a word at the start of verse 6. You might see it. It's the word though. It's just not there in the original, but, but you can see why the translators did it. They, they felt the pressure to, to make this an adversative because it, there's, there's, it's just such a hard thing to, to kind of grasp. Yes, Jesus is truly, fully equal to God, sharing God's very identity, but um, despite that, uh, uh, contrary to that, he did this ungodlike thing and humbled himself and became a servant. In fact, the Apostle's point is the exact opposite of that. It's so radical. What the Apostle Paul simply writes is, who being in the form of God. And what that means scandalously is that the J-curve that follows, the descent into self-emptying sacrifice is not somehow contrary to the essence of God, of what it means to be the living and true God. No, it's actually the form that the being of God takes. Humility is divine. And the conclusion that the apostle draws from this is because that's how it is for God, then that's how it is to be for us. We're to have that mind, that mindset, that posture. 
Well, let me put it a slightly different way. You will never be more divine. You will never be more God-like, godly, in other words, than when you are humbly emptying yourself, your self-importance, your rights, your privilege. Here's what to do with privilege. To give yourself in sacrifice for others. That is divine humility. And I'm excited about what the Lord might do in us as we open our hearts and lives to the scrutiny and formation of his word in Philippians by the power of his spirit, that same spirit who breathed out this word in the first place through the apostle. So with that introduction, let's see how Paul begins his letter to this Christian community with this commendation of divine humility coloring every point at each point in the book. The point that he's making is, here's how divine humility applies here, and here's how divine humility applies there. Well, let's see how it does at the start of the book. Because the thing is that humility comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And what we have here at the start of Philippians is a quite specific version of humility. It's the humility of association. It's the humility of fellowship. I read some time ago about a story that sort of illustrates and just gets us going on this idea of the humility of fellowship, of association. Uh, It's a story about a very upright church, a very sort of old school church, very formal, very particular. The men are all in three-piece suits and ties on a Sunday morning. The women are in frocks. It's all very precise and orderly. And uh, they're doing their thing on a Sunday morning and and 10 minutes late, in, in wanders a newcomer. It's sort of a bit of a shock actually anyway, but in wanders a newcomer, and not just any old newcomer, this is a newcomer who's a 20-year-old kid. And he's dressed like a 20-year-old kid. He's got shorts on, he's got no shoes on, he's got a ripped T-shirt. And he sort of wanders in late and wanders along and has a look and looks in and sees all these people in their three-piece suits and frocks and, and decides to stay for some reason, but, but doesn't just decide to stay. He says, oh, I'm going to actually get a real piece of this. And so he walks all the way down the aisle and at the front of the first row of seats, the first row of the pews, is this sort of little fence that you put your, your book on. And he, and he sits down in front of that little wall and starts to participate in the service. And one of the elders, very respectable man in his suit and tie, hair precisely parted, grey all over, stands up. And he starts to wander down the aisle. And the people are wondering, oh, what's he going to do? Is he going to rebuke this young man for his disrespect for coming to church like this? And he wanders down the aisle and he gets down to the front where the guy's seated and he walks in front of him and there's hush everywhere. And then he turns around and he sits down beside the bloke and he puts his arm on his shoulder and he says, welcome. You're welcome in this church. And they sit there and worship God together. the humility of fellowship, of association. The Apostle Paul writes Philippians from prison. And prison in those days is nothing like prison in these days. In the uh, 18th century, Christians were involved in what's called prison reform to make sure that prison wasn't as horrendous as it used to be because really, essentially, prison was a death sentence. Uh, There was no hygiene. The the government, the the state didn't feed you or look after you. You had to have others come and and, and provide for you. It It was a sort of a, basically, as I say, a death sentence. Uh, and, and a very, very sort of last resort. There was a, a, a place of, of, of utter shame and scorn. On the other hand, Philippi was the Vaucluse of the ancient world. It was named after uh, the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, uh, who'd 
built it uh, back in the uh, 300s before Christ. Uh, it had been destroyed and then only recently to the Apostle Paul rebuilt. It was uh, part of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the only city outside the immediate vicinity of Rome that enjoyed Roman citizenship. And in those days, it was essentially an apartheid system. Uh, Roman citizenship meant serious social advantage. And the Philippians knew it and they loved it. They're at the top of the pile. Paul is at the bottom of the pile, rotting in a prison. And yet they're associated with and in active fellowship with this deeply suspect individual. In fact, they've just sent him provisions. As I said, they, you needed someone to look after you in prison, otherwise you'd just starve to death. And so they were sharing in that very gritty fellowship of cold, hard cash. You see it in uh, chapter 4 at the end of the letter, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. You Philippians indeed know, verse 15, that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. They were the, his, his, his sort of linked church. So he, he, they took him on. They were the only church that took him on as a gospel partner. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. More than once, he says. And I'm fully satisfied now that I've received from Epaphroditus, their, their sort of uh, emissary that, that they've uh, sent along uh, this gift with, uh, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do, do you see what's happening here? This smelly, despised criminal rotting in jail and these upright, privileged citizens are partners together what is it that could forge such a partnership? And the apostle says it's a fellowship in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. That phrase, sharing in the gospel, is, is crucial for uh, this sort of introduction to the letter. Uh, the, the word there for sharing is the word for fellowship, or literally in the original Greek language, koinonia. It's, it's a bond between people that's not merely social. Uh, it's certainly not just the commonality of background or ethnic origin or skin colour. It's, it's not even the, the social bond of mutual interest, like a club. It's the fellowship, the apostle says, quite specifically, of the gospel. Not of the fellowship of ethnicity or common interest. The fellowship, the koinonia of the gospel. God's great cause. His program for the salvation of the world. And so he goes on, verse 6, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Did you, did you hear the texture, the, the intensity of this fellowship, this koinonia in the gospel? This is what it is, feels like. It's that you hold me in your heart. Not that you hold me at a distance, not that you have some kindly thoughts about me, not that you're polite and smile thinly, but basically mind your own business and I mind my own business. No, that's, that's not Christian fellowship. That's not the fellowship of the gospel. Christian fellowship is a matter of the heart. 
And of course, um, they're locked down, or at least Paul's locked down. They're, as we would put it, physically distanced from one another. But this is the point you see in the gospel. That's a subsidiary issue. Physical distance need not translate into heart distance. You can hold others in your heart when you are locked down in prison or in your five-kilometer radius just as much as you can when you're together. This is how their partners, fellowshippers, in the gospel with him, the fellowship of cold, hard cash, the fellowship of holding him in their hearts. And likewise, he with them, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. To help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Uh, this time Paul switches images here. Um, it's not so much the heart, but the bowels. Um, that's literally uh, behind when he says he longs for them with the compassion, um, the bowels of Christ Jesus. Um, we know that for the New Testament, the heart is the epicenter of human existence, the, the center and source of all that we are and do. And the bowels then are, are a secondary place. They're the place of the emotions. And it's a concept with, that we still preserve with the, the uh, phrase, you know, uh, gut feelings, our guts. Uh, or when we're feeling really emotional, we talk about being really churned up in our guts, our bowels. And, and Paul's fellowship with the Philippians churns his guts. He longs for them with the bowels of Christ Jesus. It's that intense. That's the nature of the bond in the gospel. And so for him, stuck in prison, that means he does the very best thing that he can do for them. He prays for them. He prays for them for the work of the gospel in their lives. And it's such a, a profoundly instructive, beautiful prayer. Notice that it is fundamentally about love. His prayer is simply that their love would overflow more and more. The single most defining reality in the pattern of life for a Christian, is love. For the very basic reason that God is love. And of course, you don't have to kind of exercise a great imagination to recognize that love is not very far from humility at all, is it? Since to love is to put the needs and interests of the other ahead of, as prior to, as more important than your own interest. To desire their good even if it costs you, and, and to want to be connected to them, united with that person. Love and humility, very close together. But secondly in the prayer, notice that little phrase, more and more. It's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament as the, the shape of the work of the Holy Spirit, more and more, not, not from nothing to something, because the Spirit's already at work in you, producing something to start with. Not you get so far and then you stop and cruise home, you could have gone to spiritual retirement. No, you, you never retire from growing as a Christian. The, the more and more dynamic means that in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, you're more gracious and more generous, more patient and flexible and positive and focused on others than you've ever been. And that in your 80s, you look back to your 70s and thank God that he's continued to grow you more and more. 
do you get the sort of tone of adventurousness there is to this? This is the path for your whole life. The excitement of a journey in grace that keeps ascending greater and greater heights more and more. But third, notice that this love for which Paul prays is a knowledgeable love. It's not a naive love or a foolish love or a merely soppy or sentimental love. It's a knowledge that is characterized by depth of insight, real understanding of the person and the truth about them and the very best thing for them. And this is so that in your love you'll be able to determine what's best. It's only if you have this kind of knowledgeable love that you'll know what the best thing to do is. And then the prayer has a so that as well, so that in the end what, what Jesus will say to you is well done, good and faithful servant. If, if you've lived this pattern of life more and more as you go through life, then you'll not be some shabby failure of a disciple, you'll be one that's pure and blameless, who's exhibited this wholehearted, not, not diluted or impure devotion to Christ. Because finally, what you'll have done with your life is you'll have produced a harvest of righteousness. Again, it's a, it's a, I just think it's a beautiful image, a vision for your life. Uh, what you're doing with your life is sowing. You're, you're like a, a farmer. And, and you're sowing, whether you like it or not, actually, um, words, deeds, decisions, you're sowing. And, and the apostle has... Here a vision of sowing good into people and situations. Good words, encouraging words. Good deeds overflowing with generosity and thoughtfulness. So that what is produced by your life is a, is a harvest. Because you have a love that overflows in knowledge, enabling you to determine what is best, you'll produce a harvest, a very particular wonderful kind of harvest, a harvest of righteousness. Great big haystacks. You, know, you, you ever been out in the? Actually, you haven't been out in the country very recently. But if you remember what it's like to go in the country for some time, you, you know that there'll be these these bales of hay that are just stored and stacked. That's your life, you see. Or, or I live actually in an in apartment. It's a it's an old wheat silo. I can imagine the grain just stacked up all through this thirteen-story great big cylinder. That's the harvest of your life, righteousness as the produce of your life, because God has done his work of love in you. Humble love. It's interesting, I presume some of them were sick. I presume some of these people had health issues and family problems and work challenges, and I imagine that the apostle prayed for all of them as well. In fact, we'll hear about some of them a little later on in the book. But this is the prayer that is at the top of his priorities not for the circumstances of their lives, not for their comfort, but for the substance of their lives, their posture, their stance, that it be a life of love. What will make us partners in the gospel like this, bound together by Christ? It is the great grace of God that Jesus held us in his heart. It's the great spiritual reality that Jesus entered into the ultimate fellowship, the, the perfect and absolute koinonia. Uh, he didn't share only a genuine empathy with us, although he did that too, but he became one of us. And he shared in the fellowship of our sins. He emptied himself 
and gave himself in fellowship into the place of our sins, absorbing them in incarnation and spiritual substitution, precisely so that we can share his place of glory and vindication, that we get to bear his name, Christians, you see, Christians. And what that means is that we no longer need to grasp after recognition, we no longer need to grasp after place and after security, we don't have to cling on to these things. We have all of these things in Christ. Our glory is assured. And so we are freed to follow in the divine J-curve, doing what God does with his privilege, with his glory. Self-sacrificial service. Do you see, it's, it's as Jesus' koinonia with us more and more fills our hearts that we will correspondingly share in the humility of this fellowship with one another, holding each other in our hearts. I'm, I'm sure that there, there are more shiny things that you might do than give yourself to the cause of the gospel, including in and through our life as CCRW. And the call of the apostle to us tonight is will we have the mind of Christ in this particular form, holding others in our heart, not holding them at a distance. And especially in this time of lockdown, connecting with people, caring with people, writing with to people, phoning people, holding them in your heart. And when you pray for them along these lines, that we would each be those whose production of a harvest of our lives is rich and plentiful for the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Our oh, gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would fill us with the grace that you have poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he held us, that he substituted for us. So intimate and perfect was his identification with us. Fill us, we pray, with this grace, that we too would have that fellowship in the gospel with one another holding each other in our hearts, growing more and more in love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.